Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. How y'all doing? Um, it's been a while. Yeah, it, it certainly has. Uh, it's been about two years, right? I think it's been about, boo, right? It's been about two years um, since, I've, since I've been up here. And uh, you are as intimidating as I remember you being. <laughs> it's, it's a horrifying thing. Um, so uh, you, you'll have to forgive me uh, a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm still a bit road weary. We arrived yesterday uh, afternoon from Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, uh, where we spent Thanksgiving with my uh, wife's family. Uh, she was kind enough to drive at least part of the way home so that, you know, I can prepare uh, uh, while we were, you know, making our way through the, the endless desert. Um, there is uh, just way too much desert in this country. It seemed, I was talking to, uh, to Gil about that this morning. Uh, it seemed like just when you think there couldn't possibly be more, what are they, boo junipers? That's what you said they are? Don't shrug. You had such conviction in the car. You know your plants, right? That's what you're about. Uh, just, just when you, you, there can't be any more of these bushes and dirt. You know, you go over another hill and it's just more bushes and dirt and like a hut, you know, out there in the middle of it all, something for me to obsess over for the next hour while we're in the car. Uh, because I would, I kept on, you know, looking at Corinne, every single house that we passed that was out in the middle of nowhere. And I'd lean over and I'd go, why, Corinne? <laughs> Who lives like that, Corinne? How could you do that? You know, I mean, is there running water? Do they have a telephone? I mean, what if there's a fire? Do they have kids? There's no school system out here. Is the teacher a bush? It's like, it's not the bushes. The bushes aren't teaching them anything. Do they just run around out there? There's probably cougars, you know? And it's just, I mean, it's just, it was, it was a, it was a tough drive. More so for Corinne, because she had to listen to me ranting like a madman every couple of minutes. Um, but just a baffling existence that, that some people have, uh, you know, have taken upon themselves. You know, I just, I don't, okay, so I'm not going to take it, you know, to the mat on that point. Um, but we were in Albuquerque, and Albuquerque is very much so consistent with this type of scenery. And I told Gil the story this morning. I, I shouldn't be doing this. It's recorded. Your parents don't listen to these, do they? Anyways, I said it when they were there, so. Um, but I, they, have a, they have a window, Right, right over their fireplace. It was the morning, and I was drinking my morning coffee, and I'm standing there looking out this window over their fireplace, 
and it just looks out into their backyard and then into Albuquerque, you know, and and just staring out at it, and I said, it's just so brown. (laughs) And then there was this little tug on my pants, and I looked down at my two-year-old standing there, little Leland, right? Leland goes, Daddy? And I go, yeah? He goes, it's so brown. (laughs) It just is. There's just not a lot of life and color out there, but I I digress. Um, So (laughs) over the last a year and a half, maybe uh, two years uh, that I've been um, out of the speaker seat. I've uh, taken a lot of notes. A lot of those things have become uh, like, you know, uh, portions in this devotional that I'm compiling for my kids. But there was one event that I kept coming back to, like seemingly inexplicably, like it, it, it stirred in my heart this sort of like this sort of echo of, of conviction that there was a greater truth there waiting to be analyzed, or maybe in my case, like hugely overanalyzed. And I must admit that to a degree, it, it still uh, puzzles me. So um, we're going to see if we can work through this truth uh, together today, maybe. And it could just fail miserably and be tremendously awkward. Um, but about eight months ago, uh, I was at uh, Toys R Us, and I was picking up some, some toys for the kids. I can't remember. Well, oh, I do remember why. Um, because for uh, Christmas, uh, I wanted to find a subscription box for books for my wife, because I, I, I like subscription boxes. Subscription boxes. They come to your house, and so you, you never know what's going to be in there. It's like, a, it's like Christmas every month, you know? And I wanted to get that for Corinne, but I couldn't find one that was tailored to her taste. So I decided that I would create our own, like, Turner household subscription box for her every month. And I would go find, like, different, you know, books to put in there that would be to her liking and, like, maybe candles and maybe a fun little toy and all this. So it took me to Toys R Us regularly to do that. And in one of the boxes, um, I was uh, going to put a game for us to play together, and I decided that it should be cribbage that month because uh, I love cribbage. If any of you are, are cribbage players in, in the room today, my house after church, let's do this. Let's throw it down. Yeah. Um, and for those of you that don't know what cribbage is, uh, it's maybe a game for, like, fossils such as myself. You know, it's not a game for uh, the, the contemporary kids, although there is an app for it. I could say that. It is called Cribbage with Grandpas, though, so maybe still, like an old people thing. Um, <laughs> you get to design your own grandpa, though. Um, so, but I was, I was, buying, I was buying Cribbage uh, for this box, and out of the corner of my eye, I caught the sight of this, of this Rubik's Cube, which is why there's a Rubik's Cube up here, right? And um, it was something that you know, from my, my childhood, I'd always wanted. I, I, never, I never had one. Um, I, I don't remember ever asking my parents for one, so it's not as if it's something that I was just deprived of as a, as a child. You know, it's just something that I always wanted and I never had. And as I walked by it, I thought, I'm going to buy that, you know, and I'm probably never going to solve it, you know, but, but I want to buy it, you know. <laughs> and, um, and it became an obsession, uh, I mean, the siren song of the Rubik's Cube, you've heard it a million times. They become, they get under your skin, you know, and you just, you, it drives you. You know, you wake up and you're having your cereal and you're thinking, I got to work on that cube some more. I got to solve that, you know. And, um, 
admittedly, I have like kind of one of those personalities where, you know, I would sit up for hours on end at night and, you know, I'd put the boys to sleep and Corinne would go to sleep and then the house would be silent and I should have been doing adult stuff, you know, but I was sitting there like, you know, in the dark, which just <laughs> filled with shame playing with my toy. <laughs> and I read articles. Uh, I, re I read articles about uh, the, this algorithm called God's Number. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. What like an ostentatious title to give something? It's it's God's Number. It's not even a number, really. It's an algorithm. Um, but they they uh, use the Google supercomputers to find a universal solution for Rubik's cubes, and it took 35 computing years, right, to find this. Which in like actual years is like. 20 seconds probably, but it took 35 computing years uh, to find this solution, <coughs> and, um, and they, they, they found it, and you could solve any Rubik's Cube in 20 moves or less based on you know, God's algorithm or God's number, um, and I tried it, and it didn't work for me, which is disappointing, you know, and <laughs> 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 several times too, it just never, never has come together. But I read about different algorithms. I read about different uh, techniques to be used. It became my, my leisure activity uh, while I was, you know, studying for the CSETs or the, the RECA or the TPAs, all these kind of like burdensome teachers evaluations that I've had to take over the, the, the past year and a half. And um, I, I mean, even uh, when I was working on the TPAs, did, are any of you guys familiar with like the TPAs, what, what they are. It's, there you go, Ted in the back. Thank you, Ted. Okay, Ted, come on up here and explain it to everyone. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to think about it anymore. Uh, but yeah, their, their teacher uh, preparation assessments is something like that, Mrs. Gideon. Yes, did I nail that, actually? I had no idea. I just, I'm talking. I'm just saying stuff. Um, so, but they're, they're burdensome. Each, there are four of them, and it's about 80 essays per TPA. And so you're writing these, like, these just tremendously tedious mini essays. And uh, I decided to go to the library to work on it because I have like way too many kids <laughs> in my house. It's just super noisy. So I was there in the Upland Public Library, like sitting there in one of their little booths, writing these mini essays and every 10 minutes, right? Bring the Rubik's Cube out of the bag and then just start like working on it. And mine squeaks. So everyone in the library would pop their head up out of their booth and look over and go, ah an annoying guy um, but uh, but then one day one day I solved it and I know right <laughs> I love that reaction like oh good wow <laughs> one, one day I solved it and then the next day um, I must have solved it like 30 other times you know each time just more gratifying uh, than the last night and I decided that uh, this would become like a feature on my desk at school right and um, I, I would I would take it up there and I, I would commit myself to only touching it during my lunch break or maybe after school uh, in between like lesson planning and grading papers um, but on the day that I decided to take it up, it was about halfway through the day. My students were all hard at work, <coughs> and I realized that I hadn't put it on my desk. So I reached into my bag, and I took out the little stand, because I am just that nerdy. I have a stand for it. <laughs> right, so I took out a little stand, and then I set my Rubik's Cube um, in the stand on my desk. And I, I tell you, every, every eye in the classroom locked on that cube and it was like the place value exercise that we were doing at that point in the day became the most irrelevant thing in the universe. And in one kind of unified voice, 
every seven-year-old in that room leapt to their feet and said the same thing. Can you guess what it is? No, they didn't say Rubik's Cube. Most of them didn't know the name of it, actually. They, they said, I can do that. Right? They, all of them, all, every single room, 25 kids, they all jumped up as soon as they saw it get it placed on the desk. And they're like, I could do that. My brother has one of those. I've seen that. I've done it a million times. I could do it. Just give it to me right now. Give it to me. I could do it. I could show you. Do you want me to show you? I could do it. Just can't, I take it. I could take it. I'm right here. I'm with, I can almost feel it. Just give it to me. I could do it. I'll show you how to do it. <laughs> right? And a better teacher would have redirected their focus back onto their task. Right? like a responsible adult at that. They needed an adult. They had me. I'm a first year teacher, right? So I can, that's not an excuse. I shouldn't be making excuses. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I, I, I was fascinated. All of a sudden I have a room full of like 25 kids that can all do this thing that I had agonized over for weeks trying to solve and there are a bunch of seven-year-olds. Or it's like a Mensa meeting in there. They're all saying, like, yeah, just give it to me. I, I got this. Just give it to me. I can do it. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do it right now. Just do it. Just give it to me. Right? And, and so I decided to make it very academic, right, because I'm a professional. And I said, well, let's circle up, right? We probably don't have time for everyone to have as much time as they want to do this, but we have enough time for several of you to do it. Let's encourage each other. We could journal about it later, right? There's a writing component. <laughs> Yeah, in case that's what I did, my weak attempt to uh, academically paint my obsession. Um, and before I, I knew it, we had sunk like an irresponsible amount of time into this task. But the kids were just beaming, and they were being like, you know, pretty respectful. So that's good. Um, and uh, it, it became a reward after that. Uh, and they would earn like points towards... Uh, spending time in like the the Rubik's cube tutorial uh, with, with Mr. Turner, and they they loved that. Uh, what I discovered was this: um, none of them could do it. Not a single one of them could do it. But they were all one hundred percent sure that they can do it. Um, they were all just certain that if I gave them the cube, they could do it. Like somehow. It, it, it would be easily completed. Um, and I, I told them, you know, we don't have an enormous amount of time to invest into this, so I'm going to set 30 seconds on the clock and just do what you can within that 30 seconds. And I had students say things to me like, that's 25 seconds more than I need. You know, I can do it. I got this. <clears throat> really, really impressive stuff. And, and I watched with this sort of like, anxious anticipation to see these child prodigies, you know, blast through this cube and, and solve it masterfully. And every single time, all I saw was children spinning, you know, these layers with, without any sense of direction or purpose and rarely even connecting two pieces to one another. Um, they all believed that they could do it and none of them could. There's something else that I noticed. How many of you know how to solve a Rubik's Cube? Any of you know how to do it? You know how to solve a Rubik's Cube? Okay, so you, and you look like the type. <laughs> you do. I don't want to profile. But you look like you might solve a Rubik's Cube, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so you're out. Put your head down. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That'd be rude. Um, 
But for the rest of us here, right, we're all adults in this room. How many of you could say that if I were to give you 30 seconds, you would be 100% sure that you can solve this cube? See, that's, that's the thing that I noticed, right? That all of these students, all of these children, as soon as I brought it out, they were certain that they could do it. And every single adult that saw me holding this on campus said, I could never do that, not in a million years. Not in a million years. I would never be able to do that. I can't do that. Won't even try. It would just be, it would be an unmitigated failure if I were to touch it. Right? And, and these children began from this position of assumed success. But every single adult that I met began, for this, began from this position of assumed failure. And as soon as that realization began to take hold in my heart, it was as if this tremendous weight of God was put on me, saying there's, there's something here. There's something that you're allowing to shape you. There's something that you're allowing to mold you. There's something that's happening to you to where you're not stepping into things because you're beginning from this position of a pure conviction that you will fail before you even fight. And it began to drive me to this really kind of like, I don't know, maybe deeper analysis of 1 Samuel 17. Um, And if you have your Bible, please open up to that place. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, we're going to look at the, uh, almost the entire chapter uh, th- this morning. Um, and hopefully, you know, it doesn't take all too long. <clears throat> but, but there's, this, this truth is played out there in a really unique way where you have this child with this full assurance of success and you have all the adults around him that are actually battle-tested that should logically stand in the gap saying, this is an impossibility. We can't do this. And I think that there's, there's the, 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 this truth that, that, that transcends the time, that, that, that transcends the direct application of obviously standing out uh, in, in a combat situation that, that permeates into nearly every area of our adult lives and that we allow us or that we allow to make us into the people that, that we become, which is a frightening realization. It really is. Because as Christians, I'm sure all of us want to believe that we are who we are because of Christ, because Christ is shaping us, our relationship with him, our, our knowledge of his saving grace, this, this life that we're born again into. And there was something there in that moment where, where Christ seemed to take hold of me and say, are you really sure? Or is it something else? Is it, is it, is it, is it something that's, that's really at its core quite anti-Christ? Um, so that, that's what I would like uh, to, uh, to discuss this morning, uh, if we could. And we're going to begin in verse 1. So if you are at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 says, 
Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sakah in Judah. And they pitched camp um, at Ephes, uh, Damon, uh, between Sakah and Azekah. That's, that's just a lot of things. Um, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another and the valley between them. Battles between the, uh, the Israelites and, and the Philistines, especially at this point in their history, had almost become uh, routine. The, the Philistines were actually one of the last inhabitants of Canaan when uh, the Israelites took the promised land. And, um, you know, it, it was full knowledge they needed to uh, dispel the, the, the Philistines from the land. They just, they struggled to do so. So they became like a thorn in their side throughout the period of the judges. And they played no small part in um, Israel eventually demanding a king, right? Israel just, they got sick of all this. They, they got tired of their dependence on God and their reliance upon these judges. And they said, we just need a guy, right? You know, we just need a guy to get up there and take care of this problem. And so enter Saul. Saul, a uh, young man, the Bible says that he is, he's handsome, right? That's that's a neat thing for the Bible to say about you, right? You're just a handsome guy, right? Like the Rubik's Cube gentleman over here, right? If the Bible were written today, it'd be like just a delightful beard, handsome, right? And it also said that he's head and shoulders taller than any man in all of Israel, right? So he's the tallest, he's the handsomest, right? He's got a lot going for him. And he also starts off very well. He unites the nation over a couple of successful military campaigns, starting off with the Ammonites. He starts making some really odd choices after that. And you can, you can read this starting in, uh, I believe it's 1 Samuel chapter 13 is really where it begins to launch all this. Um, but he starts to make some odd choices right around 1 Samuel chapter 14 going into 15, um, where he, he tries to recreate this formula for success. You know, like God had really done great things and he wanted to like stick that in a can and go, okay, now I know how to do these great God things. But he couldn't quite get the recipe right when he was trying to, to reapply it uh, from these earlier conquests. And by this point, Samuel, the prophet of Israel, and really like Saul's boss. It's weird to think that the king at this point had a boss. But Samuel is still the religious leader of Israel. So he tells Saul, um, you know, God's looking for someone else. <laughs> He's done with you. Which is really a rough thing, you know, to tell someone. Um, so Saul was pretty devastated by that. I mean, if my principal uh, came into my room um, and watched me teach a lesson, and then after the lesson, you know, I go up to the principal and I'm like, so, you know, how'd I do? And she goes, I think I'm just going to go ahead and post an ad for another second grade teacher, <laughs> you know, because uh, we clearly need one here. You know, I'd be super devastated too. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what do you do? What do you do? You know, I, I reread it last night and uh, it's in First Samuel 15 and, and Saul, you know, falls down and, and he, he begs for forgiveness. And you got to look at that and go like, well, I mean, just, you, you know, forgive the guy. He seems like he made a mistake and he's, he's contrite and he's, he's certainly sincere. But in the same time, when you're rereading the story, 
Saul begins to blame everyone around him. You know, he's begging for forgiveness, but he's also saying things like, well, it's, you know, it's all these guys, really. I mean, they're the problem here. And, and then, he, then he says something really weird to Samuel. He says, um, you know, maybe, okay, like, I get it. You got to find somebody else because God, I guess, is like, you know, he speaks to you. You're a prophet, whatever. I get it. But, you know, maybe just come back with me so everyone can see you with me and know that we're still buddies. Just stand there. Okay, so that I look like everything is okay, you know? And so, so you just read this and you're like, man, that's a really, that's kind of a garbage thing to do. Um, he, he, you know, be like me if the, the principal saw me and said, okay, so we need to look for another second grade teacher. And then I said, yeah, okay, so that was rough. But all the other second grade teachers, they're terrible, right? Have you seen them? They're awful, awful teachers in here, awful teachers, all of them, right? And, you know, I don't care, post an ad. But here's what I want you to do first. Could you just write a nice review that I can show them? You know, because that's all that's really important. You know, do whatever you got to do privately. But just write down that I'm super amazing so that I can tell people, hey, look at this. I'm super amazing, right? And that reputation will get me through the day. It says that Samuel didn't speak to him again after that. I think it's a really, like, important thing to take note. Right? Samuel just made his declaration and then didn't waste any more time on it. That was two chapters ago, right? But here Saul is still playing the part of the king without the one thing he needed for victory as king, which is God, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I didn't think about this until uh, it's Friday night. And I was in, you know, a hotel room in Flagstaff, right? And the kids are asleep. They're on their beds. And I'm there in the dark. And my eyes feel like they're about to explode out of my head. Because, you know, using a computer in a pitch black room, not great on your eyes. There's your PSA for the day. Um, but, but Saul had led. This is the thing that I never thought about. He had led an army of men um, into combat and he was 100% sure that he didn't have God on his side. He led an army into battle, and he was positive that God wasn't on his side. It's a scary thought. I think it's just... It's scary to think that a person could be in, in leadership... And at one point, be powerfully used by God. Bring mighty victories to the people of God. And everyone could still be looking at that person from this, this position of, of, of in, interpreting the, the present based on the past and saying, yeah, you're still that guy, right? You're still that guy. But Samuel knew in his heart with absolute certainty that, that he was not that he was not. Samuel had said to him, you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. It was just clear that he cared more about himself and his reputation uh, than, than he did about the Lord. He was unfit uh, to lead the nation, but he was still doing it. People were still counting on him to do it. And, and so he, he assembled his army they, they took to the front line and, um, and now stands before him 
a, 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 a troublesome challenge to his, to his well-reinforced ego. And that's what we see in, in verse 4. In verse 4, if you're following along, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span, and he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor, bronze wing, 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin and slung, uh, was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer, bearer went before him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Um, I don't know how I missed it all these years because, like so many of you, no doubt, I've read this story uh, multiple times. God said, "Um, Saul, you're done. You're no longer my champion, right? Um, Saul doesn't say it. He doesn't say it, but certainly his actions testify to the fact that, that he didn't accept that, right? He did not accept that as, as, as his, you know, reality. Um, you know, his, his actions seem to be from a man that's saying like, yes, I am. I'm still the guy leading it. I'm still the guy in charge of Israel. I'm still the champion. Well, the Philistines called their champion, right? Saul's standing up there when God said, you're done. You're not the champion. The Philistines bring out their champion, and he could have been a lot of things, right? He could have been a master swordsman, maybe, right? He could have been a a nimble combatant, right? He could have been a Philistine on a chariot with a pitchfork on fire, like some sort of maniac. They had those, right? Only a couple chapters before you read about their, their chariot warriors, right? He could have been a lot of things, but he was a giant. Their champion was a giant. And Saul, who stood as an affront to God saying, I'm the champion of Israel with or without God's anointing was himself the tallest man in Israel, a giant amongst his own people. Right? God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? It's really pretty great that out of all the people that this egocentric, you know, maniac is going to face off against, It happens to be the champion of another nation who happens to be a giant. Saul probably felt like, I'll stay king because who's going to make me stop? You know, God, what are you going to do? No one can even look at me in the eyes. I'm head and shoulders taller than all of them. And then out steps a man that looks at him the same way that he looked at all of his people man that stood head and shoulders over him, that looked down at him as a child, dominating him with his mere presence. And Saul, the scripture says, was dismayed and he was terrified. Right then and there, the battle was over for Saul, right? He's done. He's cashing in his chips. 
he, in his heart, he knew that his kingship was completely finished in that moment. And he was sure that if he went down to fight this giant, that he would die. And he was probably right. And so we continue reading in verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, and the second was Abinadab, and the third was Shema. I think I pronounced all those correctly. David was the youngest the three oldest uh, followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now, based on this text, it's assumed that David is somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 years old, right? Um, he's still very much so a boy. He needed to be less than 20 because it, at 20 years old, it would have triggered the mandatory military service for children of Israel. Um, so he, he couldn't have been uh, that, that old. His brothers definitely were, which is why you know they were enlisted in service. Um, and uh, David's job was to shepherd the sheep and kind of serve as this go-between uh, between his brothers that were on the front lines and his family uh, that, was, that was still back at home. Um, in verse 16, we read that for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. You just got to pause there for a moment and let that sink in, right? It's 40 days, and... On none of those days did it enter into anyone's head to do anything about this. You know, one rabbi um, uh, in retelling this story uh, it says that Goliath's favorite jeer was to say, your God is a God of war. Let him come do battle with me. And every time he said that morning and evening, the valley would fill with the laughter of the Philistines. And the rabbi says that the valley would echo with their laughter just mocking the God of Israel. Goliath realized something, right? He realized that he wasn't doing battle with a man, that he stood in that valley to do battle with a God. He said, you send me your God of war and I will put him to shame. And Saul himself no longer stood for that God. Yeah, he was merely a man uh, caught going through the motions, right? He's all dressed up in his shiny armor to represent God, you know, maybe on a Sunday morning and do his spiritual battle. Uh, opportunity arises for him to be outwardly as he appears to be. He shrinks away in fear and allows the valley to fill with laughter. He was a joke. He made his faith look like a joke. And we see in verse 17, now Jesse said to his son David, take the ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of the unit. I love how detailed the Bible is sometimes, just randomly. I don't know. I read stuff like this and I'm like, 10 cheeses. You know, that's what's going to, the, that's delicious. That just sounds great. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. 
there with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd and loaded up and set out. As Jesse had directed, he reached the camp as the army was going out in its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other, and David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. And um, as he was uh, talking with them, Goliath, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, for just a moment, um, this is a very necessary practice. Pretend like you're not reading the Bible. <clears throat> okay, I, I don't know, you know, how often you do this, right? I, I don't know. We, we tend to read books one way. We read histories a different way. And then we read the Bible in like this completely unusual way where it's, it's almost like disconnected from reality. These are actual humans. David was a kid. These are warriors, these are no doubt his heroes, right? And um, he looked up to these guys. He idolizes them. And one day, uh, hoping to be like them, he stands in the presence of them. And this fella stands up, shouts at them, and they run away like a bunch of scared children. And you got to think like what that does to a kid, <laughs> that sees his heroes behaving in, in such a manner. Uh, what happened to the battle positions, right? For 40 days, they're going through this routine. Do they begin every day with that battle cry? Doesn't that sound absurd at a certain point? You know, they're walking out to the front lines. Whoa, let's do battle. And then the guy comes out and they're like, ah! <laughs> I mean, that's, that's highly illogical to do that every day for 40 days. Um, there's a kind of conditioning here, isn't there? Right? We, like I said, we were in Albuquerque for Thanksgiving, and uh, my kids were there um, you know, with my wife's family. Her grandparents were there, and cousin Chloe was there. Right? And my kids had never really had an extended period of time hanging out with cousin Chloe. Cousin Chloe, she's only one year older than my oldest kid. My oldest kid is now five, so she's six. Right? Not a huge difference. But it was old enough, I guess, for her to be the pack leader, for her to be the role model, you know, in this scenario. And she started doing some weird stuff, like as soon as we got there. Super weird stuff, you know? Does she listen to these messages? No? We're cool. Okay. So, <laughs> within the first hour of us getting to the house, she decided that our baby, you know, Boo and I, our, our baby... Um, she decided that that was her baby, that she was the mommy. And she told us, said, you're not the mommy, you're not the daddy, I'm the mommy. <laughs> I remember looking at her going like, who am I now? I don't, even, I don't even know who I am, having like this existential crisis talking to a six-year-old here, you know? Um, but she said, you know, I'm the mommy, that's my baby. And then she looks at Miles and she says, you're the daddy. And Miles looking at me like, I'm not ready for this, dude. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's looking to me like, I was, I was her brother like a second ago. <laughs> now I'm a daddy. I mean, you know, 
I just, I don't know what to do with myself, you know, but he fell right in. He fell right in. And within a few minutes, you know, they're mommy and daddy to my baby. And, and it's super weird. Later, later, she decided that my two-year-old was the king. She referred to him as the king, right? Like Elvis or something, right? And um, that it was proper to bow to him every time he entered a room. So there she is bowing to him, right? And, and there Miles is too, seeing well, you're bowing. I got to bow to my two-year-old brother now. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so he starts bowing. Weird, you know, but that's, that's what he's doing. And um, he got so attached to this like baffling scenario that even after cousin Chloe had left to go back to Missouri, Leland entered the room one time and Miles looks at him and goes, your majesty, what do you demand? I'm like, nothing. He's your brother. This stops, you know, it confuses me. I don't like it. You know, I'm a curmudgeon. You know, Thanksgiving, um, which was absolutely sensational. If, if Jeff and Cindy, my wife's parents, are, are listening, best Thanksgiving meal I've ever had. The after Thanksgiving festivities, a little strange also, though, because the girls, the, there were some guests, and the, the girls decided to play dress up as, you know, girls are, as girls do. I don't know. Is that a thing that, that's what girls do. So they started walking through the house, and they put on makeup, and they were wearing, you know, the, like Cindy's high heels, and they're just clunking their way through their house in these oversized high heels, and just looking super weird. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at it all going like, okay, all right, not looking to Violet, looking forward to Violet getting older. It's going to be strange. But then Miles disappears, right? He's gone. He's just, he was on the couch one moment, and then he's just gone the next. And, um, and I know the girls are in the guest room, so I, I walked on down there, and I opened up the door, and Miles turns and looks at me, right, my five-year-old little man, important point to make, looks at me and says, this jewelry is too itchy. (laughs) And I said, son, you shouldn't be wearing it in the first place. What are you doing costume jewelry on? And he's like, well, I wanted to dress up like all the other girls, right? That's what we're doing now. We're playing dress up. But this costume jewelry is super itchy, daddy. (laughs) I was like, well, you need to take it off. You know, and so I, I begin to pull all this off him, and as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, "This is totally absurd. I'm taking costume jewelry off my five-year-old boy, right?" I'm thinking, "When? When's he going to grow out of this?" And, and then, and then there's this moment. Where I go like, "You know, when? When are me? When? Are, when are we? When, when am I? You know, it's like we. Here's an entire nation." following one leader who was a radical leader. And he set the tone for everyone in that community. And this guy comes out and he runs and he cries. And the entire nation, this, this group of heroes, they go, all right, well, that's, that's what we're doing. Running away to the guest room, we're putting on the costume jewelry, we're hiding, right? And this is, this is, this is what's done, right? That's what the leader did. So, so that's what I'm going to do. I can't help when, when I read this, think about 
what I am like behaviorally conditioning others to do that are around me on a daily basis. You know, like what I'm conditioning my kids to believe is appropriate behavior. What is expected speech. You know, what I'm doing in my classroom that, that you know, they're looking on and they're going like, okay, so this is how I adult, you know? That this is, this is how we do that. And, and they're looking on impressionable minds and they're thinking, all right, that's, that's how we take it on. And you know, I've heard so many preachers say it. I don't know how many preachers actually believe it, but it's often been said by preachers in the pulpit, you can't raise your congregation any higher than yourself. Don't you want to believe that that's not actually true? That's just part of the human experience though. I mean, these are the people that we look to and we say, you are the leaders. You are setting the tone for what is appropriate Christianity. And here's a man that stands up to a challenge. Now I can do this by myself. I don't need God. I stand head and shoulders taller than everybody. And then he sees someone that merely stands head and shoulders above him. And he runs and hides. He runs back to the costume jewelry because he's a child. And the entire nation sees that. And they run along with him. Because they think that that's how you're supposed to act. This is what we're supposed to do. This is all we've been conditioned to know. And Saul at this moment, he's got to be hiding in his tent. Praying for just one person out of all the congregation to rise above his capacity for leadership. And so we see it in verse 25. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. And how pathetic is this? Saul's running and hiding and thinking, I can buy a victory here. I'll just pay off the person who kills this guy, right? I'll make you wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. There's no takers. He says, okay, well, I'll give you my daughter. You can marry my daughter, no takers. And he says, okay, well, you'll never pay taxes again. No takers. It's weird that he offers the tax exemption after his daughter. Am I the only one that notices that? Right? Like he says, you can have my daughter. And no one stands up and he's like, well, maybe taxes will do it. Right? No, no one cares. No one steps up. (laughs) Right? But you can see David just doesn't get it. Says, why isn't something being done about this disgrace? But these are real people. Remember? They were, we're pretending like we're not reading the Bible right now. We're, this is real stuff. We're reading about these real people living this real life. And one of the real people that was there with an earshot of what David was saying was his own brother. And his own brother just heard him say that Goliath defies the armies of the living God. There is something that can cut you to the heart any deeper 
I, I don't know what it is. You know what really hurts when you're a Christian by name? Um, it's being reminded that you're simply a Christian only by name. That stings. It, it really does. And that's exactly what David did. David said, isn't this the army of the living God? And of course it was. Now, truly they are the army of the living God. And if God is actually alive, what could we possibly have to be afraid of? None of them wanted to acknowledge this truth, but it was David's oldest brother uh, that, that, that was cut most deeply by it. No doubt remembering the days when David was, was just a kid, right? It's his little brother. That's his baby brother. As a kid, little David would look into his big brother's eyes, right? And, and Eliab would know it, right? He would soak in that hero worship that he's the big brother, right? He's the strong brother. He's the brave brother, Big brothers are always your heroes, right? There's a time in your life when your big brother could do no wrong. I, my big brother gave me laundry detergent mixed with orange juice in a forthright attempt to murder me. <laughs> Told me that as he was giving it to me. And I drank it up because big brother gave it to me. He's my hero, right? Big brother apparently wasn't as shrewd as he you know, probably should have been. Because when I told him it tastes good, he also drank it. <laughs> and we both found ourselves in the emergency room. <laughs> but I didn't care, right? My hero wants me to do something for him, okay? Glug, glug, glug. Pain, pain, pain. And now sleep. You know, it was, that was what my hero told me to do. I followed him around everywhere when we were kids. It's the same thing with Miles and Leland. This morning, I, Leland's following Miles all over the house. They're screaming at each other, you know, because Miles can't understand why Leland is always trying to take everything that's his, right? I mean, you know the way it is. The older brother, he picks up the Batman mask. All of a sudden, that's the only thing that Leland wants in the whole wide world. So Miles has to give Leland the Batman mask to talk him down off that ledge, you know, that emotional cliff. And, and then he picks up a train. Miles trying to find something else. Well, what's the furthest thing from Batman? Thomas the train, probably. Why not? And so he picks that up. And then that's the only thing that Leland wants in the whole wide world. And he's screaming and crying. Well, why is he doing that? Well, because his hero is playing with that toy, which makes it the most important thing in the universe. So how can I be like him? Just do what he does. Just follow him around and, and be that person. Your big brother's your first hero. It's not Batman, right? It's not Fireman, right? If Batman were a fireman, maybe. But it's big brother, right? It's big brother. And that's all, that's all David saw in Eliab until this moment. And he looked at his baby brother and he saw that look in his eye change in a moment. He saw that he lost that. Now, what do you do in that moment? I tell you, there are things that you know that you should do but we all probably would do the same thing because it's so much easier to project outward, 
rather than deal with that thing that you know is wrong inwardly. And so he goes off on his brother. It hurts uh, to be discovered as a fraud. But we all are. Right? That's like no one's even, everyone's like, I'm just reading the Bible right now. I'm not a fraud. Right? (laughs) Uh, We are. Each and every one of us, to, to one degree or another. Eliab could have picked up his weapon right then, right? This story could have been completely different. He looked at the, at the gaze of his baby brother. He said, I'm not going to be that man. I'm not going to be a coward. I'm not going to let my baby brother down. He could have picked up his weapon. He could have rushed out, of, out at Goliath. And this story could have had a completely different ending. But instead, he directs his wrath towards his brother, rather than where it rightly should have gone. And we read in verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Why are you even here? You're just a kid. You're You're just a shepherd. He lashed out. At, at someone that he knew in his heart was totally right. I think it's this moment that, that Eliab would, would no doubt play back in his mind over and over and over again throughout the rest of his life. But we don't have that story because the Bible doesn't tell that story because people that live that kind of a life of quiet and comfortable conformity never maintain the spotlight very long. Eliab's story ends right here. Because Eliab was a coward, and his baby brother wasn't. His baby brother wasn't willing to let go of that look in his eye. He was willing to become the man that he always wanted his brother to be. If Eliab had his way, then verse 29, the next verse in this passage, would have simply said, David went home, because he realized what a fool he was being. But luckily, we don't get Eliab's verse 29. We get God's. Let's continue. Now, what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to, something, or to someone else and, and brought up the same manner. And, and the men answered him as before. And David said, uh, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. What a wonderfully absurd verse. I'm not going to park there very long, right? Because I know it's getting late. Um, I, I don't. You shouldn't have to listen to me for very much longer, right? But David's looking at all all these warriors. He's looking at the king of the nation. He's like, don't worry, guys, I got this. That's basically what he says. You know, you don't have to worry about this. Your servant, he'll go, he'll fight. Verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. I mean, who could argue with Saul's reasoning, right? 
And the guy's got the right idea. He's looking at this kid going, you can't do this, kid. I don't know what you're thinking. You got the wrong idea here. Um, you're a kid, you're a weak little shepherd. That's your world. Just stay in that world. This guy, he, when he was a kid, which he is not, he was a warrior, right? And since then, he's become only a greater warrior. You can't fight this guy. There's no way that you can possibly do it. And David, David's response still shocks me, right? I, there's no way you could see this coming. And he looks at him, he goes like, yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I did kill a lion and a bear, you know? So this guy will just be like, like that, I imagine, right? Do you think when you killed lions and bears, isn't it the same, you know? I mean, <laughs> what? Um, so that was important information to have coming into this scenario, wasn't it? That we just never got, right? You never hear that story. I mean, if, if that were my life, I would lead with that, you know? I would have shirts made. I don't know if there are any PETA people in here, but it was kind of a self-defense scenario, right? The lion was coming at him. He didn't, he didn't go after the lion. I, I would wear that lion's fur every day. Great conversation starter. People would come to me and go like, so what are you about? He'd be like, yeah, I just, you know, kill lions sometimes. That's what I do. Pretty tough. But David... He doesn't even mention it, <laughs> never mentions it. He was just a shepherd. And as a shepherd, it was his responsibility to care for the sheep, right? And um, when a lion approached, that's what he did. When a bear approached, that's what he did. I, I don't know about you, but if I were watching some sheep and a lion approached, I would look that lion square in the eyes and I'd say, which one do you want? right? That one's plump. Probably be pretty tasty. But that's not David. That's not David. He sets himself between these poor defenseless sheep and this vicious wild beast. He sets himself in the gap, right? It's a great illustration of Jesus. And I wish we had the time. Maybe that's another message unto itself of this, this, this figure that's willing to stand in the gap between these two things and say, you know, I'm not going to let you touch any of these poor, sweet, helpless creatures. I'm going to put my life on the line and do what's necessary to, to guard them. But from a child, as was the custom in his culture, he would have practiced with the tools of his trade. He's a shepherd, so he had a staff. And he could swing that staff with a tremendous force. And he would have had a sling and stones. And in practice, um, which is common in Asianic cultures, he would have been able to land that stone within a hair's breadth of his target. He was proficient in practice, and based on the story, he was more than that. He was battle-tested, and he had stored up in his mind these memories, right? He had stored up in his mind these memories of these times when, um, in the past, God had used him, and the assurance that if God had done that, why couldn't God do this, whatever that this would be? And so Saul would say, you can't do this. This is completely different, right? The way that we love to, you know, expand upon the differences in any scenario. You've never seen anything like this. This is completely, I mean, those are just animals, David, animals. 
This is a man. He's the craftiest of the animals. You can't fight him. You can't ever stand up against this one. And David would say, well, I mean, has God changed? I mean, God delivered me then. God hasn't changed. God will deliver me now. Spurgeon always says it best. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. It's, it's, it's brief, I, I promise. I won't bog you down with too much Spurgeon, but, but, but he just captures this moment so perfectly. Listen to this. Brethren, whenever you talk of what God enabled you to do, mind you lay the stress on God's enabling and not upon your own doings, right? So God had done this in the past. God enabled me to do that. God can do greater things yet still. And when you rehearse the story of your early days, let it not be as a reason why you should now be exonerated from service and be allowed to retire upon your laurels, but as an argument why you should now be allowed the most arduous and dangerous posts in battle. Let the past be a stepping stone to something higher an incentive to nobler enterprise. In God's name, eclipse your former selves. Oh, isn't that a great line? Gosh. In God's name, eclipse your former selves. As grace enabled you to pile the carcass of the bear upon the carcass of the lion. So now resolve that the Philistine shall increase the heap and his head shall crown the whole to the honor and glory of the God of Israel. This is key. You got to listen to this. So much for recollections. So much for recollections. I pity the man who has none of them. And I pity yet more the man who having them is now afraid to risk all for his Lord. God is faithful. He always will be. Yesterday, today, forevermore. It's just who he is. And if you've seen his faithfulness in the past, how dare any of us say that he could be anything less than that today. He will be anything less than that tomorrow. And Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor and a bronze helmet on his head and David fastened on the sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch in a shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. I love the the image of Saul putting the armor on David, a child. Remember, Saul's the tallest man in Israel, and he's putting his armor on a child, right, to do what really is his duty, right? He's dressing this kid up for his job. It must have been such a humiliating moment for him when you really think about it. And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, maybe he found a way to justify it. You know, we're so good at that when we really want to be, to justify the really strange decisions that we're making, you know. I mean, he had to have been thinking, well, there are only two swords in Israel. Because the Philistines, you read in chapters prior, had swept throughout all of Israel and taken all the smiths. So the Israelites couldn't actually make any weapons. So none of them had weapons, right? Which maybe changes your perception of them fighting Goliath. Like they're there with sticks and stuff. You know, that's, that's their army. 
there are only two swords in the nation. Saul has one, Jonathan has the other. Okay, and he's taking off his sword and he's giving it to David. In his mind, he's got to be thinking, well, I mean, the kid's well-equipped, right? The battle is really going to be won by that sword. And that's my sword. My sword is going to win the day for this kid, right? Maybe after when we're marching through the cities, we could say, the sword of Saul slayed the giant, right? And I could, that could be, it's still on me, right? People will still remember that and they'll go like, yeah, Saul did that. And the, the child will just be forgotten. I mean, the child is really inconsequential. It's the sword that is important. But then here's David. And right in front of Saul, he takes off the sword. He takes off the armor. He lets it all fall on the ground. And you just you want to see through the eyes of Saul as David's walking out the door. Dropped all the armor on the ground. Dropped the only weapon, right, that he had access to in the entire country on the ground, <laughs> And he's walking out the door, just picking up a couple of rocks as he goes, right? He's got his stick and he's got his sling and he's going to go fight a giant. His brother doesn't believe in him and the king nearly sabotaged him. Uh, David goes, though no one really believes in him. He had an entire nation, actually, you can imagine, waiting to say, I told you so when he died. Because it, they needed to validate themselves in their own cowardly behavior, right? Um, yet he goes. He does it anyways. I remember, oh, man, it's so late. I'm talking so much. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, when, when my brother was uh, 14 and I was 12, my brother decided that he wanted to uh, play guitar. And I had already been playing bass for a year. My brother said, I'm going to buy a guitar and we're going to be like the famous heavy metal Turner Brothers, right? And I was like, yeah, we are. And so he went and talked to my dad. And he said, Dad, can I have a guitar? And my, I'll never forget my dad's answer because it was just so shocking. My dad said, yes. Right, which for you isn't a big deal. But for my dad, that is, that's huge. I mean, I had my base for a year prior that I had bought from a pawn shop, like a sketchy pawn shop, with my own money, right? Mowing lawns with hay fever, okay? Because um, my dad didn't want to spend a penny on it. But my brother asked for a guitar, and he says, yes. <clears throat> and I was like, wow, that's a really big deal. He says, yeah, sure, I'll buy you a guitar. I'll even pay for lessons. Super big deal. I'll even pay for lessons. And he said, and in a few years, or he said, and in a few months, uh, when, when you quit, um, I'll even help you find room for it in the closet right next to your Boy Scout uniform, uh, your soccer jersey, and your karate gi. And sure enough, and maybe there was something that my dad had some keen insight in his son, or maybe it was some self-fulfilling prophecy. But only a few months later, we had to find room for it in that same closet. My father's... Um, face in that moment seemed to say good we can end this childish nonsense you know we can put this to rest okay we can be done with that can we just be done with that and here's an entire nation looking at this boy going you're just a silly child sure go out there go die we're smart we're doing the rational thing standing on the sidelines because none of us have any business facing down this man. 
And so verse 41, we continue the story. The Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. You can imagine this hesitation going, is this really the guy? This is the one? Or is he just lost? Um, He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. And could I list more weapons? But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank, um, uh, the stone, yeah, sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. And there's a progression here that I'll very quickly go through because I think it's important. And David arrived and he began asking these questions, right? David shows up on the scene. What's happening here? What's going on? Why isn't something being done about this? This is absurd. What are we doing? Is this what we're doing as a nation? We're just running and crying and this is humiliating. The second thing David does, right? He says, I'll fight him. It's a large step, huge step. He doesn't just point out the problem. He says, I'm going to start making up solutions. I'm going to put myself in as the solution if I need to. Third, David stands before the giant and says, not only am I going to fight you, I'm going to kill you. That's huge, right? I, I mean, it takes a lot of boldness to stand up there and say, listen, I, I mean, I might say like, I'm going to do my best, right? Isn't this natural? So we say, this is difficult. I'm going to do my best. Maybe I'll inspire some people to come help me, right? That's not what David says. I don't need any help. I'm going to kill you. And, uh, and then everyone's going to see. They're not going to help me. They're going to see that God has brought this victory. Because look at you and look at me. This is a God thing. And then fourth, the Philistine moved and David ran. Right? 40 days of seeing his op- opposition frozen in fear. And yet here's this kid that is, that is unafraid and unfazed. He runs to fight him. Listen, I've seen people do the first one a lot. It's easy to criticize Christianity. It's easy to criticize Christians. It's easy to look at them and ask a lot of questions. Like, what is this guy doing? What is he thinking? What is he saying? This is way too long. I want to go to lunch. These are questions, maybe, you know? So it's a totally different thing to step in there and say, there's a solution. Please don't be the solution and walk out right now. It's very hurtful. I've had it though done. <laughs> Um, it, it's a very different thing to say, I'm going to be the solution. I see this problem. I see the way it's impacting others around me. I see the fear and dread that it's putting on people. And I see it's not being dealt with. I know the solution. And you know what? It's still another completely different 
step to run headlong into it, to confront it and say, I am going to be the one that steps into this, into this gap. In verse 51, to finish off the story, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword, drew it from the sheath, and he killed him. He cut off his head uh, with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. The men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were slain along with Sharim, uh, rode to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. What a tremendous victory. What a story. You've all heard it before. You've read it many times, no doubt. And also, you've no doubt heard it taught better than today. So what's it all about? What's it all about? This is what I'm still trying to figure out. So this is the class participation moment, right? You've waited a very long time, and hopefully you're not like sitting there thinking, I just waited like almost an hour. It's been an hour. You're like, I've waited an hour, and this guy doesn't know what this is all about, you know? But here's the thing. I, I, think, it, I think it means something different to all of us, and I don't think it needs to mean to you what, what it means to me. Um, since I took my leave of the, of the preacher's seat, it's been a tricky year, okay? Uh, it's, 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 it's been a tricky one. I've had worse, and so have you, right? We've all been through this. But, but for me, at least, it's, it's, it, was, it was a fairly tough period of time. Um, I just came back from Lincoln, Nebraska. I took some time off of work to... Uh, be with my sister. She has a heart condition. She needs a transplant. She was just overwhelmed with anxiety because, you know, they, they, they put the, was it the defibrillator? You're the doctor. Help me out. They put it in her chest and it goes off if her heartbeat goes down to a certain rate. And it just happened randomly a couple of times. It terrified her. Terrified her. She's paralyzed by fear. She has this heart condition and she has like four kids. She has four kids. So I was out there, you know, helping her. And I, and I got home and when I got home, I walked through the door, and Boo said, hey, I'm pregnant. And, um, and so that would be baby number three, which was for us the world changer. And that's what I call her. Um, and, and, and that's what she did for us in, like, the most miraculous way. She completely changed our world. Um, I knew rather pragmatically that I would not be able to maintain my current employment that uh, the, the salary wouldn't be sufficient for our family. And so I would need another job. And with a third kid on the way, quitting your job, it's not, it's not great timing, right? That's really, that's a bad idea. And I thought, I can't do this. And Ted helped me punch up my resume. Uh, Mrs. Gideon, I don't know why I feel comfortable calling you by your first name. I still, Denise, I'll say Denise. Denise set me up with an interview for my first class, classroom teaching job. Um, they're wonderful people. They really are. And this church, uniquely filled with some of the most wonderful people I've ever encountered in my entire life. Um, but I went out to the, the job interview with my, my new resume and everything, and all I kept thinking is, I can't do this. Um, I went back to school to get my credential and, and my master's. And every class, um, every required evaluation, 
uh, every observation, I thought, I can't do this, right? Um, I, I did get that job that, that Denise uh, you know, recommended that I, that I go out for, but about halfway through the year, we discovered that it wouldn't work with my credentialing program, so I was looking at an unpaid student teaching like period of time that would like begin late in the year and carry me through the entire summer. And I'm like, man, that's a long time to go without any money for my entire family. I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids, and I don't know how I'm going to keep my house. And I thought, you know, I can't do this. And right around that time, like, Violet was born. And I have a newborn, a two-year-old, and a, and a four-year-old, and you can hear them. Like, they're loud and scary. And, you know, I thought, I can't do this. And thank God, you know, Boo could. Cause she's, she's done it every day. Um, then there's a huge miracle, a huge answer to prayer. I got this paid student teaching um, in the high desert. Uh, but, you know, principal said, you got to hit the ground ready to teach on Monday, you know? And, and I thought, man, I'm not ready to be effective. So I thought, I can't do this. Um, I took over the class that had been described to me as difficult, um, a term that didn't come close to describing it in a grade that I had never taught. Um, and I thought, you know, I can't do this. And I had to. I had to do all those things. And every day, every step of the way, I, I thought, I can't do this. A 45-minute drive from my house up to Victorville every morning, the whole time saying, what are you doing? You, you know that you can't do this, right? <laughs> um, and then one day... A totally normal day, I walked into my classroom, a room full of, of, you know, just these kids that had no right to be sure about anything, looked at this really confounding puzzle and said, I could do that. That's easy. I could totally do that. The same way that David believed seemingly like inexplicably that he could do this, that God's faithfulness was all he needed to depend on, to do whatever it was that came his way to do. I think there's just something in there for me that, that and there, there's something in there for you. When, when we pause, if I were to pause for just a few beats and ask you what it is, what, you, what this Goliath is for you, it would come to your mind instantly. And then there would be this immediate, very adult, very logical reaction that says, you can't do that. You can't do that. It would be this thing that would just want to amplify all the differences and say, you've never done anything like this before. You have no right thinking that you could do something like this now. It would be this thing where others would look on and say, you know, you're not the right guy. Look at that. Look at you. It would be this thing where maybe you would think, well, I need to get approval before I try and tackle this, right? I, I, need, I need to talk to Sam. But, but David had no one. No one believed in him. Listen, the fact that it's on your heart, the fact that it's, that it's in, your, in your mind tells you that God is in it, Right? He's the one that put it there. Here's the thing. I, I realized that 
I had spent that entire time, that entire year, doing stuff that I told myself every moment of every day I couldn't do. And then realizing that I had been prepared to do all of those things 10 years ago. And that's the reality of it. I'd been really prepared to do every single one of those things that I did 10 years ago. I was just too much of a coward to step away from the sidelines to actually do any of them. And it made me wonder what other things I had been failing to do over the past 10 years. What things we daily tell ourselves we can't do. And God is impressing upon our hearts every day saying, aren't you the army of the living God? I'm here. I haven't changed. It's a world that needs to see that. And they'll see that by you stepping out very simply and saying, I can do that. I was prepared to do that. I'm ready to do that because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Let's gracious heavenly father. I thank you for this day that we can come together. We can open up your word. We can sit at your feet. We can hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us. Lord, that you'd move in our midst, that you'd give us confidence, that you'd direct our our path. But in so many ways, Lord, I pray just for the overwhelming sense in each of our hearts that you have already directed our paths. You have already set in us the sense of what to do. Give us, Lord, the boldness to do it, to do more than ask the tough questions, but to make ourselves the solution and then to run into it. There's a world that needs you so desperately before us every moment of every day. I pray, Lord, that in seeing that, you would break our hearts and send us forth, having a holy confidence in you can be done. Lord, I thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.